Welcome to History Books and Wine, where three author friends talk about books and fun historical tidbits, all while raising a glass of vino. We're your hosts, Lori and Bailey, Eliza Knight, and Madeline Martin. So, pour a glass and enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of History, Books, and Wine. I'm your host this week, Madeline Martin. I'm a USA Today bestselling author of historical romance filled with twists and turns, adventure, steamy romance, empowered heroines, and the men who are strong enough to love them. By the time you're listening to this, Lori, Eliza, and I will actually be on our annual retreat, and we are so excited. Right now, we are probably drinking wine and having a wonderful time and hopefully writing a bunch of words, which is the whole point of doing the retreat, aside from, of course, having fun. I hope everybody had a wonderful Easter. Tonight, I am drinking Riscato Dark. Unlike my prior episode where I purchased the wine and it was a little bit more expensive, this time I went on the cheap. Apparently, Target's hosting a deal right now where you can get two bottles and then you save $5 off. So that's honestly why I'm drinking Riscato Dark. I got the dark and I got the smooth because they both sounded really, really good. So from the website, Riscato is a range of irresistible, high-quality wines from northern Italy. Whether you are a fan of the sweet, rich, bold, or soft and silky wines, Riscato offers a perfect complement to any cuisine. Riscato Dark is the newest edition of the Riscato range. This still blend of the northern Italian grapes is rich and bold while still offering a pleasing, well-balanced taste with soft tannins. With marked overtones of black fruits, blackberry, and plum combined with hints of coffee and chocolate. I have to say, it's pretty good. I don't like sweet wines at all, so I was kind of wondering at the sweet part that it had in the explanation. I think it tastes good. It's very nice and smooth, which is nice. So tonight I will be discussing health during the medieval times. Health overall is going to really be impacted by hygiene, but I'm not going to get into any of that, at least not yet. Once we do our retreat next week, Lori, Eliza, and I will delve deep into that. It promises to be interesting and probably really disgusting. Make sure that you tune into that episode because it should be a lot of fun. In fact, tune into all the episodes because they're all a lot of fun. During the medieval times, it was often thought that illness was brought on through sin. And so a lot of times people would turn toward prayer and were given that almost as a prescription. So if you were sick, it was because you had done something wrong, you had to pray, you had to be absolved of those sins, and then you would magically get better. Monasteries also sometimes had hospital cottages that were attached to them that were used for villagers who couldn't afford physicians. As of the year 1200, there were over 400 of these. Often there was little that the monks could really do to help as far as actual medical care went, but a lot of times just having a clean bed and a restful place to stay and a steady diet really did help improve a lot of people. Also, I'm sure that they were prescribing prayer on a regular basis as well to help out with anything that was brought on by sin. So now we're going to kind of cover the different types of doctors that they had back then. So first of all, the upper echelon of everything were physicians. They were required to have 10 years of education at a university. And of course, only the rich could really afford to even go there to be educated. Most of the medieval medicine ideals came from the Greeks. That's where primarily a lot of their education centered. And so a lot of what 
they thought had to do with the body was based on the movement of the stars. So they thought that star alignments were in conjunction with the bodily alignments. And based off of all of those, that was how they either determined what was wrong with somebody or figured out how to fix them. In fact, by the end of the 1500s, physicians were required to calculate the location of the moon prior to doing any surgeries or any other complicated procedures. They also believed that the body's four humors were related to those elements. So for fire, you had yellow bile. For earth, you had black bile. For air, you had blood. And for water, you had phlegm. And these were all balanced out either with sweating or vomiting or bleeding. And with bleeding, they would either slice them open and let the blood actually come out or they'd collect it in a little bowl or they would even attach leeches onto people. And once the leeches had sucked enough blood, they would just magically fall off. Additionally, urine was looked at on a regular basis and the color of the urine would be indicative of whatever the person was suffering from and from there they could go through the process of treating it. If a practice worked with a physician, then it was typically repeated again, although honestly, I think a lot of times when the physician would go through and do this procedure, it really was more like it worked in spite of what he was trying to do. I'll cover some of the crazy things they did toward the end. I'm saving that little nugget of awesome for last. Till then you'll have to hear about all this other stuff. If the practice did actually work in spite of the cure, then it would be repeated again. And if the second time it did not work, and typically this was just with one patient. So if the second time it did not work, it wasn't that this was a case study of a group of people and these people it worked on, so clearly it's going to work. No, it was one patient. And if that one patient it worked on and the second patient it did not work on, the physician arrogantly assumed that it was the patient's fault. So of course, he had done what he was supposed to do as a physician and the patient, how dare they, their body did not react to it properly. One of the reasons why they felt back on the Greek learning of medicine was because they actually were not allowed to experiment on the dead and it was completely forbidden. So they didn't have the opportunity to to dissect people. They didn't get to see where their organs were. They didn't get to practice first. All of their firsthand experience came from living victims and people who were already suffering from various illnesses and in need of help. Another thing that I thought was actually really interesting in this time period, there were female doctors and they weren't exactly trained to be doctors. In fact, they really weren't even welcome in the field. However, during the Black Death, which I will get into in a little bit as well, there were not enough doctors to go around. And so they pretty much just took whatever they could get. So they were not formally trained, but they still were out there. They were helping as much as they possibly could. And actually in 1160, Abbess Hildegard of Bingen wrote Liber Simplicus Medicinae, which is a simple book of medicine. I thought that was pretty cool considering the fact that she published a work on medicine in 1160, which was actually 200 years prior to the Black Death. After the physician came the surgeon. He was inferior to the physician, but slightly above the barber. The barber was only allowed to pull teeth and let blood. However, a lot of times surgeons were also barbers as well as butchers. And to be honest with you, I think that surgeons probably would do a better job than the physicians because at least working with dead animals, you're working with bodies on a regular basis and you could almost practice like, hey, I'm going to stitch up this pig and make sure I can sew an ear onto a body or I don't know, something like that. But a lot better than like, meh, I've never done anything on a human before. Let's see how this works out. One of the interesting things about barbers is, you know, the barber poles that you see like when you go get your hair cut, how it has the red and the white striped, or you may have even seen the red, white, and blue striped. Those originated from the medieval era. And the reason why was because you had several strips of linen that were used for the practice of extracting teeth and bloodletting. Some of those would be covered in blood and some of those would just be plain white. They would be washed and they would be set outside on strings to dry. And when the wind would blow, they would get tangled up together. And so they made those red and white striped little lines. And so when they started to advertise them, 
them, that's how they would always use it with the red and the white. Now, the reason why you see red, white, and blue is because when we came to America and we had our barbers here, we wanted everything to be patriotic. We were a newly America. We wanted everything to be red, white, and blue. And that included our barber signs. So they incorporated the blue to make it be more patriotic. The apothecary was where you would get your medication from. Sometimes you'd get it from the physician as well, but often if you needed something specific, you could go to the apothecary. They also happen to carry cosmetics and sweets and perfumes, which kind of made them like a ye old CVS. And then we had the wise women, which were the women in the village that a lot of the town folk went to because the town folk couldn't afford to have physicians. Usually they would go to the barber if they were in absolute dire need of having a tooth pulled or something along those lines. But the wise woman, she was the one who went around who had all the herbs. She also went back on a lot of folk traditions. So if you've ever heard some of those things where, getting this wrong, but if you take a potato and you rub it on a wart on a full moon, then it will disappear or something along those lines. So she fell back on a lot of those, which I think that considering the fact that physicians were incredibly expensive and falling back on the alignment of the stars, it doesn't really sound that much worse really and probably didn't cost you nearly as much. They also had dentists back then. Dentists used files and forceps that could help to remove some of the tooth decay and they even would use wires to help strengthen any loose teeth and they could even replace teeth that were missing with oxbone. I'm not really sure how they would work that. It seems like they would probably use corpse teeth or even animal teeth. I don't know how ox bone would technically be stronger than teeth. So I'm kind of curious about that. Also in 1768, they had braces back then. So they were horseshoe-like things and they had holes in them and they were bound together with gold wire. Marie Antoinette actually had those. When she went to French court initially, they were appalled at how absolutely crooked her teeth were. And so she had to go through months of rigorous and brutal straightening of her teeth without any anesthesia whatsoever. And now granted, we don't get anesthesia now whenever we get our braces tightened. I know because I had braces and it was very painful. However, my braces lasted over the course of like a year. She had her braces fixed in like three months. Another thing that was kind of funny about it when they had their braces, they were told to eat grapes on a regular basis to try to keep it from rusting in their mouth. I don't know how likely it was that it would actually rust in their mouth, but that was still pretty funny. Life in the medieval times was definitely hard and peasants had it the worst of all of them. They often suffered from more disease and more illness than the nobles and they also didn't get any downtime. You know, if one of the nobles was injured or whatever or sick, they could take the day to lay in bed, they could recover. Peasants were made to work regardless of what was going on, unless of course it was a holy day. But if it wasn't a holy day, they were expected to be at work whether they were injured or not. Additionally, a lot of times they were more exposed to the elements. The nobles had much more insulated homes and so they didn't have the drafts and they didn't have the sweltering heat that the peasants would have been subjected to in their small huts. In their huts, they also didn't have quite as many furnishings and so oftentimes you would be sleeping on the floor rather than in a bed and so even just not having the comfort of having the bed underneath you can sometimes lead to less sleep which can also cause you to have other problems. Additionally, they didn't even use pillows. I read somewhere that they were using logs as pillows which sounds terribly uncomfortable. I think I'd rather just, I don't know, prop my arm underneath my head or something because that sounds pretty bad. <laughs> Additionally, water was really difficult to get to. Even if you had a stream nearby, you could get water from the stream. However, water is very heavy and if you lug up one bucket at a time, that's going to eventually get very heavy and also you have to consider the fact that these people have been working the entire day. Now they have to lug buckets of water up from wherever it is, a well or a stream or whatever may be nearby or not very nearby. And so not having access to water on a regular basis for them also made things a little bit more difficult as far as trying to make sure that they were keeping healthy. Also, women had it pretty rough back then because one in three women died in childbirth. Those odds are pretty harrowing. In fact, most women didn't even know that they were pregnant until 
until around the fifth month when they felt what was referred to as the quickening, which is when they could feel the baby moving inside of their stomach. And they had this old school pregnancy test where if you peed and inside the pee, you put a needle. If the needle rusted, then you were pregnant. I remember when I was pregnant watching that clear blue test come back positive or negative, the little plus or the little minus thing, and thinking that it took forever. <laughs> At least it wasn't waiting for a needle to rust. I'm just saying that would be very, very time consuming and very nerve wracking while you wait for that. When wealthy women went in for their lying in, a lot of times they would have tapestries completely surrounding them and it was meant to block out all of the light for fear that the light would damage the pregnant woman's eyes. I don't know why they felt like pregnant women couldn't have light around their eyes. I thought that was really weird, but they did leave a lot of the windows open because they wanted her to have the fresh air. But the reason for the tapestries and for the darkness was also to recreate the feeling of the womb. So because childbirth was so incredibly fatal, wills were actually written before the woman went into labor. And the woman could even die from exhaustion while delivering the baby because of how long it took sometimes. However, the risk of infection after the delivery was oftentimes more fatal than the delivery itself. A lot of times the mother and the baby wouldn't survive the infection that they would get afterwards. They did have cesarean sections However, it was only used if the mother was already dead or if she was about to die. And even then, they weren't very successful, which totally makes me cringe to even think about. Forceps were invented in the 16th century. However, they were kept as a family secret by the Chamberlain family for over 150 years. When they were using it, they would make the mother be blindfolded and they would bring it out in a little box and then they would open it up. Basically, this family made themselves the creme de la creme of the midwives. And so it was sort of their thing where if there was a difficult delivery, they could come in and save the day. And nobody knew exactly what it was that they were using. Well, it was these forceps that they invented. Originally, the idea came from sugar tongs, which is kind of funny. You're like, oh, sugar tongs. Oh, that could totally get a baby out if it was bigger. But hey, it worked, kind of. 150 years later, the son tried, or I guess grandson, great-grandson, tried to sell the device in Paris in 1670, but the demonstration was a disaster and unfortunately killed both the mother and the child. So the forceps didn't appear again until with but with a much different model in 1735 and then it started to be used and, and perfected on to what we know it to be today. They had some birthing texts back then in the medieval days but they were all written by men most of which were monks who had taken vows of celibacy. I know I know it's really laughable. Bless their hearts they tried. Their original idea was that the insides of a woman were the mirror opposite of the insides of a man so basically just men's insides but inverted. I'm not going to even comment on that because <laughs> there's a lot of things that I should say but it's all inappropriate. <laughs> Once a woman actually did finally live past her childbearing years, she could be expected to live to the age of 60 to 80 years old. So I mean that was really the most difficult time in her life was getting past the point of having children. Unfortunately it was believed in the medieval times that it was a woman's job to deliver the babies and so that was basically all that she did and a lot of times she would have baby after baby after baby. The reason why they had wet nurses was because they discovered that women who were nursing the babies on their own would not get pregnant as frequently after having had a baby. And so hiring a wet nurse allowed the woman to get pregnant more quickly to have more children. And speaking of children, they had their own struggles. 20 to 30% of children under the age of seven died. Those are pretty awful odds. I can't even imagine being a mother back then. Mainly this was due to disease, just everything that they could catch because the young are so susceptible to it. The Black Death completely ravaged children. It was very, very 
sad. But the rich children were just as at risk as the poor children. There really wasn't like a huge number of difference between the two because they all were exposed to all of the illnesses that they had. They didn't have the vaccines and everything that we have now. I did read one time that, I've actually read this several different places, where it was suggested that people in the medieval age didn't name their children until after the age of seven because they didn't know if they were going to die or not. So that's false. Like, that's just dumb. The fish that we have swimming around in our aquarium probably are not going to live for seven years, but every single one of them has a name. I'm just saying, and I didn't birth any of them. I can't imagine for seven years you referred to one of your children as, hey, girl A or boy C. Yeah. So anyways, if you ever read that, it's false. So the overall life expectancy for people in the medieval ages, if you go by the average going from birth to death, it's only about 35 years old. However, that's because of childhood and birth being so dangerous. If somebody survived not only their childhood, but also made their way past their teens, then their life expectancy jumped anywhere between 50 to 60 and could even be expected to live between 70 and 80. Now, of course, the more money you had, the higher chance of a longer life expectancy you had. The lower you were on the totem pole, the lower your life expectancy went. The Black Death occurred from 1346 to 1353, which of course the physicians blamed the planets being out of alignment because of course that's what totally caused the Black Death. Now of course we know that it wasn't the planets, it was fleas, it was really poor health conditions, which we will get into on the hygiene episode soon. But the Black Death resulted in a 30 to 40 percent mortality rate, which killed a third to half the population, which was 75 to 200 million people through the entire area of Eurasia, which is just crazy, crazy how many people it killed. I remember reading about the Black Death and being horrified that people were so afraid of dying themselves that they would abandon family members. You know, if your mom, if your sister, if your child was sick with it, some people would just leave because they were so afraid of death that they knew that it was going to be coming for them as well. So the way that the Black Death worked was you got a bubo on your groin or your armpit. It could be small like a golf ball or it could actually get big to be the size of an apple and like a legit organic sized apple, not like the genetically farmed ones that we have today, but still pretty big and pretty awful. And it was apparently very, very painful. From that bubos, there would be a spread with black spots and a lot of times you would get a really high fever and then from there you would vomit blood and then you would die. But it was bad just because people were dropping dead on the streets and yeah, it pretty much ravaged Eurasia. For those of you who don't know it, the song Ring Around the Rosie is actually about the Black Death. And I remember I used to love Ring Around the Rosie when I was a little girl. We'd sit there, we'd play it. So when I found this out, I was in high school and I was pretty horrified by this. So if I horrify anybody with this, I do apologize, but still it's fascinating and I just have to share. So Ring Around the Rosie was to be like the little rings that would appear around the buboes. Pocket full of posy was because they would keep posies in their pocket to smell to ward off the smell of death. And I'll get into that in a little bit too. Ashes, ashes, because they would burn all of the people who died, or at least they tried to, to try and keep the infection from spreading. So they would actually burn their home. They would burn their clothing. They would burn anything that they had touched to try to prevent the infection. And we all fall down. That's because people were literally dropping dead in the streets. I mean, it was really, really intense. So now let's get on to some crazy cures that they had. These aren't going to all be the crazy cures because there were a lot of them to get into. These were just some of the ones that happened to stand out to me in my research that I did today. So one of them was a kidney stone cure, which is better than what I'll get to in a little bit. But this was a hot plaster that was smeared with honey and pigeon dung over your back. So I don't really know that it would help with kidney stones, but it probably stunk. And it probably was pretty nasty to try and wipe off later on too. With toothaches, they used to think that there were worms in your teeth that were 
burrowing into your enamel and that's what was causing your toothache. The remedy for this was to take a glass of water and put it against your mouth and then take a candle flame and put it against the infected tooth to burn the worm out. I can't even imagine how uncomfortable that was when you're already in a lot of pain with dental issues. Another one that was pretty bad was a thing called trepanning. This was a lot of times used on people who were epileptic or if people had really bad migraines and it could even be used for people who suffered from pretty bad mental illness. But essentially they thought that there were evil spirits trapped inside of the head and that was what was causing the issues. Of course, logically, you have to let it out and you can't just let it out by calling to it. You have to make a hole. And so that's what trepanning was, was they made a hole in the head and it wasn't like a teeny tiny little like pinprick of a hole. It was like, oh, we'll go with the apple explanation again. It was like the size of an apple. I mean, these things were huge and sometimes they would even actually take pieces of the brain out as well. They also had an interesting way of treating hemorrhoids. Apparently this was really an issue. I do know that peasants a lot of times pretty much just ate grains. They ate a lot of like barley and oats and so I'm wondering if maybe it caused some backup issues that maybe led to hemorrhoids. I don't know but apparently this was a thing because they even had Saint Fiacre, it's F-I-A-C-R-E, who was the patron of hemorrhoids. So wow, what a patronage to have, right? (laughs) But it was said that he sat on a rock for so long that it made his hemorrhoids go away. Um, I don't know how effective this was. I wouldn't recommend anybody suffering from hemorrhoids to go sit on a rock to see if it works, but a lot of times that was what people would be prescribed if they had hemorrhoids was to sit on a rock and see if it worked. And if that didn't work and you were truly desperate, apparently they had a hot poker and they would just kind of, I'm just not going to go there. You know what I mean? So being hit with an arrow was a common injury faced on the battlefield. Unfortunately, and I didn't know this, this was very fascinating. Arrowheads were stuck onto the wooden shaft with a little bit of wax. So it was melted on there and then as it dried, that's what stuck the arrowhead on there, which is really great for a quick, effective way to attach your arrowhead onto the shaft, which is all well and good until you get hit with that arrow. And then what do you do? You go to pull out the shaft, right? Well, when you pull out the shaft, that wax is pretty weak and it lets go of the shaft and the arrow stays lodged inside. And the arrow has little barbs to keep it from going out once it has gone in. And so there was a spoon-like item that was invented to help scoop the arrowhead out of the wound, which really sounds awful. I know. I apologize if this is a really painful listening episode. I know. But I mean, just to make you appreciate the life that we live right now and anesthesia and, you know, get a little shot and you don't feel anything, it's great. (laughs) So going back to the pocket full of posy that I had mentioned when I was talking about Ring Around the Rosie, a lot of times it was thought that bad smells were what actually caused illness, which isn't too far off from the truth if you think about it, because bad smells are kind of like nature's way of saying, do not touch, stay away. Dead bodies stink, rotten food stinks, things that have a lot of bacteria, and things that have a lot of bacteria are generally really bad for us. So probably not too terribly far off from the truth. However, they thought that the contagion was carried with the bad smell, and so a lot of times what they would do is they would get like a pomander or something that smelled good. You might even see it in movies where they're walking around and they lift the handkerchief to their nose and they smell it. It's not because they're trying to not smell the stink around them. It's because they think that it's going to actually keep them from getting sick. 
But as they say, even a broken clock is right twice a day. And they did actually get some things right. They used opium-based pain meds to help out with alleviating any sort of suffering that the patient was enduring. They use this a lot during the Black Death as well. However, they did have rules in France to minimize the usage of this, probably because of how it was associated with addiction. They used to try to seal wounds to keep them from getting infection inside, and they would use things like egg whites and old wine. I'm not really sure exactly how they did that. They also set bones with plaster. So you know like when you break a bone now and you get a cast? That's kicking it back to the medieval days, y'all. Yep, that's how they used to heal broken bones then, and that's how they heal broken bones now. They also used to use wine for an antiseptic when they were doing surgery, and they used anesthetics to knock out patients like mandrake root, opium, and hemlock. So at least when they were performing some of their rudimentary surgeries, at least sometimes the patients were knocked out, hopefully. And if not, hey, there was opium after, right? Some of the surgeries that they did, one of them was cataract surgery, which this blew my mind that they could actually do a cataract surgery until I read how they did it and the after effects. So what they did for cataract surgery is they referred to it as needling. And yes, it is exactly what it sounds like. They took a thick, flat needle and they pushed it to the edge of the cornea to shove the opaque lens to the lower part of the eye. Ow. I can't even imagine how awful that would have been to endure. And apparently it really didn't even do the trick. It was good enough to clear out your vision enough that you could do like laboring work, but it wasn't anything good enough that if you had to work with close-up things, you wouldn't be able to do that anymore. One person actually referred to it as sort of like a camera without a lens. So you could probably see like a giant E if you were doing the vision test, but that's probably about all that you would be able to see. And they also did a surgery for kidney stone treatment. This one is really, really bad. So this kidney stone treatment goes beyond the plaster and the honey and the pigeon dung. Like that wasn't already bad enough, but apparently this one involved putting a sharp metal rod up the urethra and finding the stones going, well, up the back door. It was really bad. I'm not going to go into detail on this, but if you ever want to look it up, feel free. (laughs) A couple years back, Eliza Knight and I were at Historical Romance Retreat, and if you ever have a chance to go to that, do it because it's absolutely amazing. But we did a fun little class on historical herbs, and after the class was done, we had so many of our readers who had wanted to be able to see it that we put it together on Eliza's website, which is History Undressed. That's historyundressed.com, and you can search up historical herbs, but also read a lot of the other stuff on there because there's There's a lot of good stuff on that website. I'll include the link for that in the show notes. I tried not to do too much crossover here because if people had read that, I wanted to make sure that they could read that and also listen to this and still find it all interesting or hopefully interesting. I think this stuff is interesting. The historical herbs you'll find are for healing and also for poisoning. (laughs) Now for the book that I'm reading this week. I'm reading My Lady Viper by our own E. Knight. Was completely sold on this book when she started talking about it. I can't even remember what episode it was, but it sounds really. I think it was actually episode nine when we were all talking about our different characters and history that we found fascinating. So I'm reading Lady Viper, or rather I'm listening to it. The narrator on Audible does an incredible job, and I'm really enjoying this book so far. E. Knight does a great job putting you in the middle of history. All of her little details, all of the emotions that she threads in to rip your heart out, indeed, she puts you right there, and she puts you right in the middle of the action, and whoo, 
your head will be spinning because it's so good. Okay, so without further ado, even though this was recently read, I'm going to read it again. It's my book that I'm reading and I get to do that. When Anne Boleyn falls to the executioner's axe on a cold spring morning in 1536, Anne Seymour knows her family faces peril. As alliances shift and conspiracies multiply, the Seymours plot to establish their place in the treacherous court of King Henry VIII, where a courtier's fate is decided by the whims of a hot-tempered and fickle monarch. Lady Anne's own sister-in-law, Jane Seymour, soon takes Anne Boleyn's place as queen. But if Jane cannot give King Henry a son, history portends that she too will be executed or set aside, and her family with her. In desperation, Lady Anne throws herself into the intoxicating intrigue of the Tudor court, determined to ensure the success of the new queen's marriage and the elevation of the Seymour family to the more powerful position. Soon, her machinations earn her a reputation as a viper in a den of rabbits. In a game of betrayal and favor, will her family's rise be worth the loss of her soul? It seriously is so good. You have to check it out. (laughs) Alright, and so my book this week, I'm going to be talking about The Madam's Highlander. This is An Unconventional Woman. Freya Campbell is the Madam of Molly's, an infamous Edinburgh body house. Running the establishment not only enables her to help war widows and aid soldiers, but the income generated affords her family a good life and safety in times that are uncertain and dangerous. An honorable man. Ewan Fraser is a man ashamed by his father's transgressions. To salvage his legacy and name, he has earned his way as a captain in the Black Watch, England's Scottish Regiment. When war turns the days dark and dismal, he fears for his mother's safety and will stop at nothing to protect her. A love that knows no bounds. With England's hold on Scotland tightening, Ewan and Freya must work together to save their threatened families, but can two unlikely lovers find happiness in a world with seemingly no future? One of the things I really enjoyed about writing The Madam's Highlander was actually the hero, Ewan Fraser, Captain Ewan Fraser. He is totally straight-laced. In fact, the ladies in the body house call him Captain Nay because when they go up to him and they try to offer him drink or, you know, other things that ladies in a body house may offer, he'll say, Nay, thank you. And so the ladies jokingly call him Captain Nay. And I really enjoyed writing the whole play on that because Freya is so much less uptight and he is very, very straight-laced. So it's a lot of fun. All right. Right, so my question from readers, if you could live during any time period, what would it be? I would love to say the time of Henry VIII. I think I would absolutely love living in that time period, but I would have to have modern day conveniences because I've really gotten used to things like contacts and my Sonicare toothbrush and indoor plumbing. And also I really love my central AC unit for the heat and the cooling and not having any bugs is definitely a bonus. So I would say Henry VIII time period. So that's like early 16th century. However, I would want to have my modern conveniences. My question to you readers is what time period would you want to live during? You can email me your answer at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. Make sure that you check out our website, which is historybooksandwine.buzzsprout.com, where you can find the show notes for today's episode. We can also be found on iTunes with our podcast, and we are now on Spotify, SoundCloud, Google, and Alexa. Simply say, Alexa, play History Books and Wine podcast podcasts and she'll start right up for you. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard today, please consider leaving us a review and remember that you can always send us questions at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out the new episodes published weekly on Thursdays. Next up is Lori Ann Bailey on May 2nd discussing food in the medieval era. Following that will be our next happy hour on May 9th where we will hopefully have that already recorded from our retreat which will be going on right now. 
now. Yay! I hope you have a wonderful night. Enjoy a glass of wine with us, and we will see you on Thursday. Good night. <laughs>